Hello? It's working. Uh, good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Buddy Killian, and I'm one of the three uh, elders who serve on the elder board with uh, Pastor. Um, and uh, they asked me to make an announcement today and remind, well, maybe not remind, just announce that uh, we're in the beginning of our um, capital campaign, which uh, is something we've talked about as a church family for the past year. Uh, we've identified a couple of pretty significant needs. Um, the two that are most important, as we see it, is the boiler, which is definitely on its last legs and will most surely break down probably this winter if we don't fix it or replace it. Uh, and also we've been talking about the handicap ramp on the side of the church and uh, they're doing something to repair it or replace it altogether. Um, uh, working through the numbers, we came up with a, a, a number of about $90,000 that needs to be raised in order to achieve those two objectives. Um, so we have to come to, together as a family and, and decide to, uh, to, 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 to put some money up and, and figure out a way to fix these things. Um, and so we've uh, been talking for a while now about doing a capital campaign, and uh, we're going to kick it off starting today. So the capital campaign uh, begins today and goes through December 5th, okay? And we're asking each of you as a member of, of our family to just be prayerful and thoughtful about what you might be able to do to contribute to the capital campaign uh, and, um, uh, and, and remember that these are gifts that we would give over and above our usual tithe. I was getting to that, but thank you. Uh, Bill wants me to remind you that in this capital campaign, we've already taken in $24,000. Um, and Andrew also wanted me to remind you or to let you know that there are two families among us who have um, already stepped out uh, and agreed to um, do a matching gifts campaign inside of this capital campaign. The matching gifts is effective from today through Thanksgiving up to a total amount of $25,000. So these two families will match your gifts dollar for dollar up to $25,000. So if you think about that, if we as a church family can contribute that amount and it gets matched, that's $50,000. We already have $24,000. We're pretty darn close to our goal. So this is definitely an achievable thing. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I just would want you all to consider prayerfully what you can do to you know, come alongside and help us out. Um, I'll probably be trying to come up here each week or at least a few times over the course of the next eight weeks to let you know where we are with things and, and to just continue to encourage you to consider prayerfully what you all can give as we try to uh, achieve our goal here. Um, I know God is an awesome God, and he will provide for us. And um, I have every faith in this church and our family to come together and do what it takes to have this happen. Because it needs to happen. It's, these aren't things that we want to do. These are things that we need to do. If we keep these doors open, we need to do these things. I'm just going to close my time uh, uh, with some scripture. This is uh, 2 Corinthians Chapter 9, 6 through 15. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. 
You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God. For, genero- for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given you. Thank God for his gift, too wonderful for words. Thank you guys for your attention. Thank you, buddy, and thank you for everyone who has contributed already. A huge, huge blessing. Well, before we jump into God's word, let us uh, pray. Dear God, I, I thank you for each person that is here. Thank you, Lord, for those who are watching online. You are such a good God. I pray now as we look at your word that your praise will be on our lips, will be on our minds. Thank you that your word is alive and that it's active. Thank you, God, for who you are. I pray that you'll be worshiped this morning. In your name, amen. So I, it's pretty obvious from my last name, but I am um, Polish. But I don't know much about uh, Poland at all. But um, in one of the history classes I had to take recently, they were talking about the royal castle that was built in like 1600, and it was home of all of these monarchs for centuries and centuries, and it was absolutely beautiful, beautiful architecture, beautiful history. But in World War II, it was detonated by the German army. Centuries of beautiful architecture and centuries of beautiful history gone. Beautiful things in a fallen world will be damaged. Beautiful things in a fallen world will be damaged and destroyed. Things much more beautiful than the royal castle. And if you've never seen pictures, I would encourage you. None of them I could share of it actually built because I would probably get sued showing it in this situation, like legal copyright stuff. But look up a picture sometime. But, but it is an absolutely beautiful castle destroyed. And you probably see that beautiful things in a fallen world are destroyed or damaged. You see that if you look around, even for just a couple of moments. But as we think about what is beautiful, 
There is nothing more beautiful than the local gathering of believers in a local church. Now, you might say, well, Connor, you work at the church. Of course you're going to say that. (laughs) But not just because I work here. This is uh, what Exalting Jesus in the Psalms, a commentary, wrote But why church is so beautiful. And it's easy to forget this when we just gather every single Sunday. It's easy to forget why it's so beautiful. When we come together, we are joining in what God's people have done ever since Mount Sinai. We are gathering to behold the glory of God. We are joining with the angels in heaven and saints throughout the ages to sing God's praise, to stand in awe of him, and to listen to God speak. When we gather on a Sunday morning, when other churches gather on a Sunday morning, it is like where heaven meets earth. It is a picture of what's going to happen for all eternity for those who believed in Jesus. The local church is the most beautiful thing here on earth. But like any other beautiful thing here in a fallen world, it can be damaged. And what we're going to look at this morning is this. The very thing that can damage the beautiful body of Christ can strengthen it. The very thing that can damage the beautiful body of Christ, can strengthen it. And for better or for worse, you and I possess the very thing that can either damage it or strengthen it. So here's what we're going to look at. That statement, we're going to unpack it, break it up into three quick, uh, well, maybe not quick, three sections. (laughs) You know how long I preach. First is the beautiful body of Christ. This is going to be the longest part. The first is beautiful body of Christ. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 32. So first thing, we're going to look at the beautiful body of Christ. So in each section, first section, I just want to worship God together. Second section, I just want to warn you, and I want to warn myself. In the third section, I want to challenge us. So we have worship, warn, challenge. I couldn't find a W word that would fit for the last one, so we'll have to stick with challenge. But we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 32. Now, it's up there on the screen, but I always encourage, grab your Bibles, open them up, and let's look at them together. So this is verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without any spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So as we look at the beautiful body of Christ, I just want to look at Real quick, a few reasons why the body of Christ, the church, is so beautiful. I don't know about you, but when you're with something or you're just, you just get used to something, even if it is really, really beautiful. Um, you might get used to just looking at the, the sunrise or the sunset, and after a while, it just, it's the same old, same old. Um, or we live near the beach. Maybe we just get used to the beach. Like, yeah, the beach is here. People far away are going to come, and they're going to be in awe of, of how beautiful the beach is. So I just want to look. Let's remind ourselves why the church is so beautiful. And we don't have time to get into it, but this passage has so many good things to say about marriage. We don't have time. Real quick, marriage is a imperfect but beautiful reflection of Christ's relationship with you and me. Even broken marriages reflect Christ because Christ has made a pledge to be in a relationship with us who are broken people. Don't even have enough time to get into that, but there's so many good things. Now, you might be familiar with this passage in Ephesians chapter 5 because it's probably read a lot in uh, ceremonies and weddings and all of that. And often when we look at this passage, the main focus is what it has to say about husband and wife. So good, so true. But there's something even sweeter that this is talking about, and that is the church. That's why in verse 32, he says this mystery is profound, why marriage exists, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, what is the church? If we're going to talk about why the church is so beautiful, what is the church? Is it just this here? Look in the passage. Is Paul writing this talking only about New Life Church? Like, oh, only New Life Church submits to Christ. No. When he's writing this, is he only talking about churches in America? Only churches in America submit to Christ. Christ only loves the American church. Is that what Paul is saying? No. First reason why the church is so beautiful is because it is universal and local. Now, eyebrows may raise when I say universal. Follow me for a second. If you look at the language and the words that Paul uses as he writes, he's using broad general terms for the church because the church is not just here at New Life Church. It's not just churches in New Jersey or churches in America. Church is not... Church is much more than what happens here at New Life Church, but it is not less than what happens here. The church, just how it's used in the New Testament, is a gathering of God's people. And the Bible makes it clear, doesn't use these two words, but it makes it clear that the church is universal and it is local. Both are very, very clear. 
Now, when it talks about universal church, it does not mean we are universalists, that just everyone is a part of God's family. What universal means is that the church includes Christians from all time, all space. What that means is you are connected with Christians over in Africa or Christians over in Asia. It means right now with the Christians who are being persecuted in Afghanistan, you are connected with them. But it also means you're connected with the Christians that Paul was writing to here in this passage. So the church is universal. It's the people of God across all time, all space. And what is amazing about this, it's, it's easy to just say, okay, church is universal, all people. Um, what's amazing is that the perfect, holy creator has always worked through a distinct group of people. First it was with the Jewish people, now it is with the church. And that should blow our minds that the holy creator of the universe would work through broken, sinful people. He didn't have to do that, but he works through distinct groups of people. Now, if you look here in the passage, it's, it's talking about the general church. And there's more verses we could go to. Sake of time, we're not going to. But Paul's talking about the universal church. But at the same time, who is Paul writing this to? He's writing this to the church in Ephesus, a local church. Paul makes it clear here and all throughout the New Testament, it's clear. The church is universal, but it is also local. The local church was and is commanded, assumed, and practiced. And it's been that way for less than 2,000 years, that if you are a believer, you are a part of God's people, the universal church. You are connected with Christians all across all time and space. But at the same time, if you're a believer, you should be part of a local church. So if you were to go to Christians back when the church first got started and you told them, well, I don't really need the church, it's just me and Jesus, their minds would have been blown First, because they understood the commands, but also because the early church was such an integral part to their relationship with God. Christianity is not for the lone wolf, the individual who thinks, I got it, it's just me and God. Christianity is a people. That's always how God has beautifully and wonderfully worked through a people. So one of the reasons the church is so beautiful is because it is universal and it is local. Now, let's look at each of the verses and let's see what is so beautiful about the church. So first reason, the, the local church, the church is beautiful because it is universal and local. God graciously works through a distinct group of people. The second is the body of Christ is beautiful because of Jesus. So look there in verse 23. Because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Let's try to look at this as if we're reading this for the first time. Jesus is the leader over the universal, and local church. 
He could have easily left us alone. We are very sinful people. He could have abandoned us. He could have left us to figure it out on our own. But he leads the church. He guides the church. He doesn't leave us guessing. I'm so thankful for that because I already have enough guessing in my life. I don't know what I'm doing 75% of the time. But Christ does not leave us guessing. He has given us his word. Look there in the rest of verse 23. He is the savior of the body. And again, it's easy to read that and go, okay, he's the savior, what's next? But stop and think. Jesus could have left you and me away from the distinct people of God. He didn't have to do what he did. But John 1.14 says the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the perfect son of God, came here, took on flesh so he could take on our punishment for sin so we could be a part of his people, his plan to redeem all of creation one day. He is the savior of the body. And thank God it is not some person that is the savior of the body. Thank God it's not you that is the savior of the body. We fail But Christ never does. He is the savior of the body, the savior of you and me. I love this quote. This is by a a Christian historian. He said, Christianity is the only major religion to have at its central event the humiliation of its God. When Jesus was hung up on that cross naked, taking on the sin of you and me, he was humiliated And he did that to be the savior of the body so he could bring together his people, a distinct people. Jesus was humiliated to save me, a wretched sinner. He is the savior of the body. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus loves you, he loves his people, he loves the church, and he sacrificed himself for you, for me, for the church. And he was humiliated on that cross knowing that you would be rebellious. And he knew that knowing that every single local church would be rebellious. He knew the sorrow and the pain But he still died to save a distinct people to himself. He was humiliated for you and me. He loved you and me, even though he knew what we were going to be like when he went up on that cross. It is really hard for me to love someone when maybe I'm frustrated with them. And if I had the opportunity to sacrifice, do some kind of sacrifice, knowing in advance the person was going to turn their back on me, I am pretty confident I would not do that sacrifice. 
But Jesus was humiliated for you and me. The local body of Christ, the, the church is so beautiful. When you see sin and failure, yes, there should be some kind of anger and, and frustration that rises, but ultimately we should be in awe that Jesus would love and sacrifice himself. It's easy when we see someone we're frustrated with, we see their sin, to get judgmental and angry. But our first reaction should be in awe that Jesus died so that they could be saved and Jesus died so that I could be saved by faith, by grace alone. This is my favorite. I love this. Verse 26, look at this. So Jesus loved the church, gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. Jesus sanctifies and cleanses you. We don't even have really time to get into all the words going there, but the idea is he saves you and then he begins to make you more like him. I've been to the zoo a number of times. Um, I always love seeing the hippo. Not every zoo has hippos, but I love seeing the hippos. They're funny creatures. Have you ever seen the hippo kind of swim and roll around in its own filth? Kind of actually almost any animal uh, in the zoo. Like that is you and me in our sin. We love our filth. We love just sitting in our sin and our filthiness. But this idea of Jesus saving us, cleansing us, sanctifying us means that he chooses you, he forgives you, and he begins to wash you and make you more like him. And it is a slow, long process because we are rebellious people by birth and by choice. But he doesn't give up sanctifying us. He doesn't abandon the process of cleansing us and making us more like him. Mark Dever, a pastor in Washington, D.C., said this, I don't know what you are up to today as a believer, but I do know what the Holy Spirit is up to. He is making you more like Jesus every single day. I am so thankful for that because I look at who I am today and I want nothing more to not be who I am today because I am so rebellious and so sinful. And sometimes when I screw up, I get so frustrated. And sometimes the only thing I can do is cling to the truth that he is washing me and cleansing me. He was humiliated for me. He will not let me go. Jesus sanctifies and cleanses you, me, and his church. And it is a slow, long process. Look there in verse 27. This is the one I really love. He did this. He loved himself. He sacrificed himself. He cleanses and washes our sin. And he does this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. One day you will stand before God and you will be holy, blameless, perfect. Jesus will get you to the end and he will not let you go. One of my favorite uh, hymns is Hold Me Fast. He will hold me fast. I would encourage you to listen to that. Not now because it would be a little distracting, but after. And this is one of the verses. 
I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. We hold on and we strive for holiness, but we can only do that because God saves you, he holds on to you, and he gets you to the end until you are holy, blameless, and perfect when you stand before him because Jesus was humiliated on the cross, because he rose again, securing that you will be a part of his family by faith, by grace, by Christ alone. Jesus has secured that, and he will hold you fast and will not let you go. This is what Jude 24 to 25 says. Love these verses. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. God is able to protect you from stumbling. God is able to get you to the end. God is able to bring you home. And I am so thankful. Because my love, it's not just often cold. It's almost always cold. I'm so thankful that God holds us fast. Because life is full of fearful paths. Sin Doubt, worry, anxiety, confusion. Life is fearful. It's hard. But he will get you to the end. He will bring you home because he is faithful. Brother and sister, if you have believed in Jesus, look at me. He will not let your soul be lost. Let's let's look at verse 29. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. He cares and provides for you, me, and the church. What God has done for the church and what he is doing now is amazing. I so want you to see that. I don't want for my own heart or for your heart to just get so used to what happens here that you forget the beauty. And when we gather, it is heaven meeting earth. It is a picture of what's going to happen one day for all eternity when he has brought us home. Now I say all that, I want to take a step back. When I say the church, the local gathering of Christians is beautiful, I don't say that ignorantly and I don't say that lightly. There is real, in churches all across the world, There is real church hurt. There is real church abuse that has happened since the church got started. And if that is you, if you you have at some point in your time faced that, I am so sorry 
I, I, I acknowledge you. There are some churches that don't submit to Christ at all. Some leaders who don't submit to Christ at all. And it is only by God's grace that any church or any leader doesn't fall and end the race badly. It is only by God's grace that I will submit to Christ and not fall. There are some local churches that do not follow God and his word. They are not beautiful. And God will deal with them now or ultimately on judgment day. I don't, I don't want to look past real church hurt, real church abuse. I don't want to look past that because God doesn't look past it. It might seem like it, but he does not. He will deal with it in his time. But I want to say to all of us, but especially those who might be struggling with church, maybe if you're here or if you're watching online, I want to plead with you, don't give up on the local gathering of believers in Christ. Man, there is absolutely a need for time and healing, professional help. And there are legitimate times when someone needs to leave a church because they are not submitting to Christ. But don't give up because I don't see Jesus talk the way he does in Ephesians 5, to 32 about anything else. The church is special, a distinct people of God. It's different than any other group of Christians. There's so much beauty in the local church. That's how God has made it. I think about how my sister-in-law, when Allison's grandmother passed away a number of years ago, she took some of her grandmother's vases and cups. She broke the glass and she would make beautiful picture frames with the broken glass. And that's a picture of the church. Broken things coming together to make something beautiful. That's what the picture frame was. That's what the church is. Broken people who have been redeemed coming together by God's grace, making, doing, living something beautiful. Heaven meeting earth, worshiping the creator, a picture of something that will be done for all eternity. Church, all churches are broken because we're broken people. The church is not a museum of saints. It is a hospital for sinners, led by sinners. There's so much beauty just thinking about broken people who have been redeemed coming together to make something beautiful. So when you see sin in a local church, in the news, here, any other church you're part of or family members are a part of, we shouldn't be surprised because beautiful things in a fallen world will be damaged. But every time we see that, we should be newly surprised that God would save such a broken people and make something beautiful out of them. Now let's real quick talk about the beauty of what happens at a local church. I should probably, for legal purposes, stop saying real quick, because I don't think it's ever real quick. (laughs) But let's, let's go. Quick for me. 
the beauty of what happens at a local church, the beauty of what happens here on a Sunday morning. Broken people coming together to worship and enjoy the holy creator. When we sing, it's a glimpse of heaven. Heaven, where Sabbath rests will never end. Heaven, where death will be no more. One of my favorite moments of being here at New Life Church, and I have many, one of my favorites, I actually found it on YouTube. So back in November, John was leading, and we were singing, Death Was Arrested. And I remember being able to hear the voices of everyone in the church singing about God's mercy and grace, and that death has no power over brothers and sisters in Christ. One of my favorite moments, because in heaven, we're going to be able to hear each other singing, the, singing to the one true God. I love that memory. We get to hear his word proclaimed. He's not left you and me in the dark guessing. We get to hear what God wants us to know. In the local church, we get to be a lighthouse Inviting people in, hear about the one true God, see how majestic and powerful and glorious he is, hear about how he was humiliated so you could be saved despite your sinfulness. What else is beautiful about what happens here at New Life Church or at a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church on a Sunday morning? There's diversity and unity in diversity. So many people with so many different backgrounds from so many different places coming together to praise God. The church is a distinct, diverse, united people of God. And you have brothers and sisters who have your back. I'm so thankful for that. Jesus makes the church beautiful. Obviously, I don't make the church beautiful. The leaders don't make the church beautiful. Jesus makes the church beautiful. What he has said, what he did, what he is doing, what he will do one day when he redeems all of creation. But the reality is, the beautiful body of Christ can be damaged. That leads us to the second point. Damaging the beautiful body of Christ. That's the fill-in. What is the greatest threat to the church? Think. What is the greatest threat to the church? I think our minds probably go to persecution. You you read about what's happened in Afghanistan or what has happened for all time since the church um, got started. You'd probably think persecution. But I think when you look at what the New New Testament warns about most... You and me is the greatest threat to the church. We don't even have time to get into all of it. But you and I are one of the greatest threats to the church, specifically your tongue, my tongue. The tongue is one of the greatest threats to the church, how we use it. Acts 5, right as the church just got started, People lied, and God warned about that. 
1 Corinthians 1, Paul had to rebuke the church in Corinth for arguing and taking sides. All of Galatians is about people, with their words, preaching a false gospel. Ephesians 4 is all about be careful with your words, be careful with foul language, be careful with slander. Let's, let's get into specifics, how we are a threat to the local church. James 5, 9 says this, Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Complaining is heavily judged by God. And it is so easy to happen anywhere, but especially when a diverse group of people, broken people, come together. Look at James 1.26. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Romans 1, it's not up there on the screen. I'm not even going to read a specific verse, but there's a list of sins and God places gossip in the same area as murderers and God-haters. 2 Corinthians 2.12 For I fear that perhaps when I come, I will not find you to be what I want, and you may not find me to be what you want. Perhaps there will be quarreling, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambitions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. Almost all of those things done with our words, with our tongues. Matthew 12, 36-37. When I read this, it's a little while ago, it, it was humbling. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people have to account for every careless word they speak. Every is a lot. And I think about how I speak. I fear that I will have to account for a lot when I stand before Jesus. And there's so many more warnings we don't even have time for. Persecution, I don't think, is the greatest threat to the church. Yes, horrible. We don't wish it upon any church anywhere. But when you see what happens under persecution, the church strengthens, grows, goes out there, disciples are made. In China, when they kicked missionaries and kind of everybody out, everyone figured there's so much persecution, the church is basically going to be dead. But when they opened things up, they found that the church was thriving. It thrived under persecution. I think one of the greatest threats to the church, and I think it's clear all throughout the New Testament, you, me, how we use our words, how we speak about each other, to each other. Now let's, let's, let's talk practical. The practical damage of a tongue. Well, it damages within the church. Now, everything listed might not close a church. Probably wouldn't. I don't think you're going to read a newspaper, the local church closes because someone was gossiping. I don't think that's going to be the case. But it slowly kills the people within the church. Everything listed here and all throughout the New Testament slowly kills the people within the church, a body and individually. A sinful, uncontrolled tongue poisons people and it spreads like a virus. And I see that in my own heart. 
What happens when someone is bitter? What happens when I'm bitter? It's an attitude of the heart. I can feel my heart harden. I become angry at every single thing the person does. I judge them. And I might start gossiping, talking about them, talking bad about them and behind their backs. Charles Spurgeon said, the church is not perfect, but woe to the one who finds pleasure in pointing out her imperfections. And how easy is it to do that? Not just in a church, but in each other, in the people in our lives. And that goes back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago with the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's an attitude of the heart. And I'll be honest. I've been so sad to see what the tongue, the uncontrolled tongue, has done in and out of the church the past year. There's been a lot of division. I don't even just mean here, just the church as a whole. I think a lot of damage has been done as Christians have maybe unwisely at times talked about politics, conspiracy theories. COVID, vaccines, it spreads like gangrene. I've been very, very sad. Something is seriously wrong if you are known more for your thoughts on those things than your thoughts on your Savior. You should be known more for what you think about your Savior Not your thoughts on theories, politics, COVID, vaccines. You fill in the list. Something is seriously wrong if that's what you are known most for. If that's what you're talking most about. I was thinking about the other day. I was thinking, what am I most known for talking about? Not up here, obviously. That doesn't count. But personally, what am I most known for talking about? Silly, foolish things? Or is it about my mighty Savior who is humiliated for me? Real quick test on that. You could ask people. You could check your social media. Are you causing needless division in the church? What are you most passionate about? Is it your Savior Or is it about the mess that's going on out there? All these things, they have their place, sure. But what are you most passionate about? It brings damage within the church and it brings damage outside the church. Because people can see divided Christians, angry Christians, and think, I don't want anything to do with that brings reproach upon God's distinct people, and it brings reproach upon the gospel. We damage the church so easily. Dividing people, hearts getting hardened and bitter, talking bad about brothers and sisters, 
judging. We're all probably guilty of that. I know I am. You and I are one of the greatest threats to the people of God and God's local church. Before we get to the third point, I do just want to say this. I'm very thankful for this. The church can be damaged, but it can't be destroyed. Local churches will close. Local churches will fall. Local churches will be persecuted and disbanded. But God's people will never be destroyed. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Rulers have come and they have gone. Empires have come and gone. Persecution and threats to the church have come and gone. Have come and gone, but God's people have been around for a little less than 2,000 years. Everything outside of God's people, they'll come and go. Threats may start up here in America. I have no idea. It'll come and it will go. God's church can be damaged, but it will not be destroyed. So do not panic. Trust. Now, last point. One of the ways Christ has cared for and provided for the church is by providing you. You are one of the, you and I are one of the greatest threats to the local church, but you and I are also one of the greatest blessings to the church. So this last point, protecting and strengthening the beautiful body of Christ. Remember, the very thing that can damage the beautiful body of Christ can strengthen it. And if your tongue can damage the church, it can also strengthen and protect it. Turn to Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. It'll be up there on the screen. Let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. The local church is a blessing because you have people who've got your back. Not in a nosy way where they've got your back and are kind of looking over. Well, what do they got going on over there? I don't know if I agree with that. Not in a nosy, busybody way, but people who have your back like a soldier on the battlefield, like a family, who are watching out to protect and care for you. I love that in verse 24. Let us watch out or consider one another. Do you have people's backs in the church? Do you have people who have your back? Are you intimately connected with other believers, especially here in New Life Church, who've got your back, who are watching out to care and protect and warn? Do you have that? I need that. Please watch out for me. I am woefully rebellious and sinful. Man, stay after church. Connect with people. Get in a life group. Build personal relationships. Grab lunch with people. Build connections so you can have people's backs and they can have yours. Be honest and vulnerable with each other. So that is watch out for one another. Now this word, I love this word, to provoke. 
So I have two sisters, one brother. So it's my older sister, me, younger sister, and then my youngest brother. When I think of the word provoke, I think about when I was little, and I would hear probably almost every day, Connor, stop provoking Emily. Connor, stop provoking Anne. You're causing trouble. Just let it go. So that's what my mind goes to, doing things to get a little reaction. And the rebellious part of me loves the provoking and pushing the buttons just to get a little reaction. That's the sinful part of me. So when I think of the word provoke, that's what I think of. Poor Anne, Emily, and Aiden. But what it's saying is doing something that produces a strong response. Stir up, provoke. How do you provoke someone to a good response? The good response being to love and good works. How do you provoke someone to love and good works? I think two main ways. First, encouraging people. Remember back to the song, He Will Hold Me Fast, Life's Fearful Path? Life is hard. There's death, there's doubt, there's sin, there's temptation, there's struggles, there's suffering, worry, anxiety, a lot of guessing, confusion. Life is hard. We need people who give support, who give hope and confidence. How sweet it is. You could probably remember a time someone encouraged you, maybe not even intentionally, but they encouraged you. You hold on to that. I think the best way to provoke love and good works is by encouraging people. But we don't often because either maybe we feel like it's a little awkward or embarrassing or because we're only focused on what's going on here in, in my life. How can you encourage brothers and sisters today after the service? Yesterday, I reached out to um, a, de- a dear sister and, and just let her know, man, I, I love you and I'm proud of you. What can you do to fellow brothers and sisters today to encourage this life is hard? I think the best way to provoke a good response is to encourage people. And then there is the other way challenging people because I can become very lazy in my relationship with God and blind to my sin. You all can. We need people who can challenge and warn, man, I'm, I'm really worried about you. Now, I'm not talking like maybe they curse once and you're like, whoa, 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 buddy. Let me warn you, buddy. This is not necessarily that. When there's a a pattern, we should be concerned about people and we need to warn people, not in a busybody way, but a way that cares for people. James chapter 5 talks about you need to go warn wayward believers and you may save them from God's judgment. That is serious. Do you care about your brothers and sisters enough not only to encourage them but challenge them? to do the hard, humble thing and just show your concern and talk to them. I need that. Think about how when I was uh, first 
married, and this is a comment about me. I thought I was really good at self-control. I did. I, I remember one time thinking I had it under control. And then I got married and I realized I don't. Um, and again, that is a, that, that's on me. I have real sinful roots. I needed someone who was watching out for me and helping me see reality. One of the reasons I'm so thankful for Allison. But I need not just her, many people who are watching out and warning. So the local church is beautiful because we gather together. Don't neglect it. It is a beautiful thing. Gather together. Encourage each other. Challenge each other. Provoke each other. Not like I provoked my siblings, but in a loving gospel way. And when we often think about ourselves when it comes to church, like what am I going to get out of it, or I'm not really getting anything out of it, it's not a big deal if I just start drifting and, and not gathering because, you know, it's not really affecting me. We often think of us, but we don't often think about how we are needed by the other people around us. People need us, and we need people. It's really easy to think you are sanctified and holy when you're isolated, and none of those sinful roots are getting exposed. It's one of the best things about the church. Those sinful roots, they start getting pulled and exposed. People need you. I need you. You encourage me. I love staying behind and talking to people. People I don't know or people that I'm, I, I love and am close with. Even unintentionally, you encourage me. I love hearing what God is teaching you and, and how you are navigating life's fearful path. I need you. You encourage me. You challenge me. I love you, New Life Church. You in person and and you online. I am so thankful for you. The very thing that can damage the beautiful body of Christ can strengthen it. So brother and sister, will you choose to damage or strengthen God's church through your words and through your life? It takes intentionality and it takes a hating of sin in a violent fight against our sinfulness. Now here is a cool thing. I was so pumped because the communion schedule got a little messed up. But I was so excited. I had been planning on, on talking about some of these things like months ago. And I was so excited to find out that we get an opportunity right now to experience the beauty of the local church through communion. Communion is a serious symbol given to the church to do together as a reminder of what Jesus did on and off the cross for his people. So if you do not have your communion cup, I think you could go in the back and they will have more. Real quick, I I want to read two things about this. 